On this episode of Stories Behind the Grind, listen to my conversation with Karan, director of Monitor Deloitte. We discussed the five key strategic questions every business owner should ask, how to approach problem solving and finding the core problem, and how to develop your own strategic thinking. My name is Aidan Vokolo, and here you will find business strategies, tips, and tactics that you can incorporate not only in your own venture, but your life, to help you simplify and strategically grow, scaling up the impact you're having in this world. Listen as I talk to creators, innovators, and game changers on what it takes to build an impactful business, uncovering their insights, strategies, and tips to help you increase profitability and develop a thriving team culture. Welcome to the Stories Behind the Grind podcast. Karan, thanks so much for coming on the Stories Behind the Grind podcast. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Aiden. Great to be here, mate. Karan, you founded an international non-for-profit, are the chairman of the Australia-India Youth Dialogue, bringing together youth leaders to discuss important matters between India and Australia, and are the director in Deloitte Strategy Consulting Practice with a focus on solving complex strategic problems. Tell me, what was life like growing up for you and what drew you to strategic thinking? Yeah, thanks, Aidan. Um, great question to start with. So I, I was born in India, but I actually grew up in the Northern Territory. So slightly different upbringing compared to some other people who, you know, my colleagues who work with me. And I don't know if there was anything directly which led me to strategy consulting from my upbringing, but I'm a Sikh, so I'm a practicing Sikh, so I wear a turban. And as you can imagine, wearing a turban in a place like Darwin or in the Northern Territory really made you stand out, particularly um, in the mid-90s and early 2000s, which is when I lit, lived there. So I was always very aware of my physical identity, which led a pursuit in my teenage years to develop a deeper understanding of identity. I've always been a competitive person. And actually, the intersection of those two things we talk about at work, the archetypal strategy consultant is what's called an insecure type A. So someone who always wants to win and succeed and develop a better understanding of the things they're doing on, but is never happy with the result. And I think part of my upbringing probably shaped that in terms of you know how I got to wanting to be in strategy consulting. But I've stayed in it for now uh, coming up on 11 years because I love inherently ambiguous problems, which is um, what we solve on a daily basis that have a sort of enterprise-wide or system-level concern or consideration and really the ability to make an impact on on businesses and communities, which is what I've been able to do with my day job, but the couple of uh, endeavors that you, um, that you mentioned in your introduction sort of in my personal life as well. What are some of the sort of results or the impacts you've seen for the communities you've affected throughout your work? The not-for-profit that you foreshadowed that I co-founded is called the Young Sick Professionals Network. And it's quite a literal explanation of what the organization does. And the founding of it was born out of the the understanding that Sikhs were the fifth largest religion in the world, but very, very new to Australia. So in fact, something in the magnitude of 80 to 90% of Sikhs have been in Australia for less than 15 years. And in fact, the population rate has grown at 400% in the last 10 years, fastest growing and the youngest religion in Australia and New Zealand as well. And the intent of the organization was when you have the opportunity to write something with a write on a blank canvas and write something which is your own story, that is really, really unique. And so the realization that a few of us had in 2012 when we created the organization was what is the story that we want to tell in this new country and what is the legacy that we want to leave behind? And that's the intent of the organization. So we organized event. Well, we did organize events. Obviously, the events are a different nature right now, but aimed at networking, career building, and progressing young people's careers so that they can make an impact. And through that, we've been able to help people get ahead in their careers, secure jobs, 
we're running a drive at the moment, given the, the increase in unemployment, particularly around the student population, on reviewing people's CVs and giving them interview advice and skills. It's all free um, with the intent of helping them navigate through what's a particularly difficult time. So little bit of support that we've been able to give, I've been able to contribute to a fledgling community is really satisfying. That's a massive endeavor to be able to sort of shape and um, sort of mold an organization from its sort of beginnings eight years ago now. You mentioned sort of legacy building and, you know, developing the story that you wanted to tell through growing this organization. What is that legacy? What legacy do you want to leave with it? Yeah, I think the main thing is we talked about this concept of, and when I say we talk about it, it's actually born through the values that the custodians of the faith and the people who follow the religion have as part of them, which is being members of community who stand out and stand out as per the values that they uphold. And the values, they're quite universal human values, right? Equality for all, serving others before you serve yourself, ensuring that you're acting with the utmost integrity, non-egotistical, and we are apolitical, but at the same point being quite progressive in the values that we have. And we thought one of the things which is really important was concurrently with how can we ensure that the community itself is safe and settled? And there's a challenge with all minorities, you know, that you get segmented in sort of into a, a sort of a, a side role or you're just another community or the other extreme, which is, you know, you create some sort of ghetto culture and, and crime and whatnot can get out of hand. For us, it was, you know, lay the foundation so people can be successful and productive, but then concurrently set ourselves up such that those values can shine in the future. But if I took a Maslow's hierarchy approach to it, people are only going to consider the application of those values in a new place once their food shelter is settled. And that was the first thing that, that we sort of focused on. So if the legacy is that we're able in the long term to let the inherent values which exist in our community, say back in India or more globally, shine in the long term in Australia, we would have done a good job. That's really powerful stuff. I'm trying to think of the, what, what do you think is the crossover between that and business ownership in general? Is there, a, yeah. is there a match between the two? Can, can we learn as business owners from what you've done with growing that network and apply it into our, our own business? Yeah, it's a great question, mate. And I think the crossover is bearing out quite clearly when I advise clients. So you sort of foreshadowed it. So just, uh, I guess, 10 seconds on what I do in my day job is this. I'm a director at Monitor Deloitte. Monitor is the strategy consulting arm of, of Deloitte. And I advise clients on matters of corporate strategy with a general focus on the financial services industry. But I've been a consultant my whole career. So I've sort of grown up advising clients across a number of industries. We're more often than not now consulting clients on more than just, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it would have been around successful strategy is about setting myself up for financial outcomes. That's certainly important now. But I mean, Aiden, you'd know this well as would your listeners, but purpose-led leadership, thinking about how an organization sets itself up for to impact more than just its shareholders, but its employees, its broader stakeholder network, and indeed the community it operates in. That is central to how business leaders need to be thinking about their business. And it's it's good business because your employees care about that, but it's also just a better way to live, which is hopefully what your listeners are, are looking for as well. I like how you said the changeover from what it used to be, which was just bottom line financials, to now a more holistic view of you know employees, the community, and yeah. multiple stakeholders at large, all sort of interacting and all for the greater good in a sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
When it comes to Deloitte, what's the core sort of fundamentals to Deloitte's approach to strategy? So about seven years ago, I think seven or eight years ago, Deloitte bought a uh, global strategy consulting house called Monitor. And Monitor was the firm, it was a firm founded in the 80s by amongst a number of founders, a gentleman by the name of Michael Porter, who you may have come across. Porter is, you know, the godfather, if you will, of modern day competitive strategy, a very tenured Harvard Business School professor. And, and Michael Porter and his acolytes sought to commercialize their research by uh, way of a firm. And so they founded the Monitor Group and it was extremely successful over the course of sort of 20 years. But then it, it got caught up in a couple of things, the chief amongst them, the global financial crisis, and they were never really able to recover from that. And so Deloitte bought the firm uh, about seven or eight years ago. And we then adopted a lot of the ways that they think about strategy. And central to the thesis of our thesis on strategy, at least, is very well articulated. And if your listeners want to pursue some reading on top of this, I'd highly recommend a book called Playing to Win, which is written by two guys. One guy called Roger Martin, who was the managing director of of Monitor North America and then became the Dean of the Rotman School, which is the University of Toronto's business school, and A.G. Lafley, who was the former CEO of Procter & Gamble. And in the book, essentially what they try and do, which is, then this is the way I consult the clients, is articulate strategy as a very simple to understand democratizable way of making complex choices easy, but also helping you engage staff, customers, community. And what they've created is what we call the strategic cascade of choices. So it's five simple questions, very elegantly articulated that a company must answer in order for them to articulate their strategy. And the questions are simple, but the, the response to the questions shouldn't be treated simply. It actually should form quite a philosophical discussion on how you think about your business. So if I was order the questions going from top to bottom, it's firstly, what is your winning aspiration? I'm articulating them in the way they're written, but they're not to be answered chronologically. And I'll speak about that in a second. So firstly, what is your winning aspiration? Inherent in that is what's important is the word winning. So there's a lot of fluff that goes on with how people write their goals. What Roger Martin argues in this book and in his thesis is be very clear on what makes you win. Don't play to play, play to win. The second question is where will you play? So be very deliberate around which markets, which channels, which products, which customer segments you want to compete in. Thirdly, how will you win? Which is what is your USP? Why do your customers buy from you and not your competitors? Why will they buy from you tomorrow? Fourthly is what are the distinctive capabilities you win? So what are the things you need to invest in that are going to help you deliver on that USP or the reasons you win? And then finally, what are the management systems which are necessary for you to enact the strategy? So this is to be... I mean, it's sort of, you know, I've articulated in a way which sort of makes sense starting from the goal and working your way down. But the whole point of the cascade is this reinforcing arrows which support each of those five questions so that you should be able to read it backwards and forwards and it should form a coherent narrative around your business. Those five central questions, that cascade of choices, that forms the center of our thesis and how we advise clients on how they should think about this strategy. When you've got those five questions you know, answered and in place, what are the results that you see with clients that adopt or, you know, that you um, that you consult for? What, what are the so, sort of outcomes uh, from it? Probably two points I make here. Firstly, to be clear, strategy is both a tool for problem solving and choice making as it is engagement. And one of the terms I used was this notion of democratization. A lot of people do 
strategy as if it's a it's a thing done in the ivory tower with say the ceo or the general manager or whoever the highest ranking person in an organization is along with perhaps their direct reports in the executive team and it's not necessarily the outcomes may be shared with a broader team but the process is not shared the intent of the articulation of the cascade is you should you should actually empower staff to be part of the process. So there's actually a part of the the whole strategy setting process, which is allows you to engage staff right from the outset in the generation of the strategy, not just the execution of it. So that's one thing. And I wouldn't understate the importance of employee engagement, employee morale, and better outcomes from the outset in engaging them in the process. The second one is then, you know, you asked about the outcomes. And the thesis on it rests around this notion of how individuals, namely executives, and then organizations make complex choices. And it's born out of a pretty simple philosophy which is actually choice-making is the hardest thing that individuals do. You cognitively, you're trained when you grow up as a child to choose between good and bad. You know, don't hit that kid, don't steal that lolly, don't cross the road without looking. But as you become get into adulthood, you know, through your, your tertiary years and work life, you're inherently choosing between good and good. And that is borne out in what you do as an executive. You know, should I invest in market A or market B? Or should I, you know, shut down that site or that site? Or should I invest in this ad campaign or that ad campaign or this channel or that channel? And actually, that causes paralysis. And so what the cascade explicitly allows you to do is you can set up alternative strategies and evaluate the assumptions that underpin them. So the outcome is actually borne by explicitly knowing the fact that, well, this is option A, this is option B, they have mutually exclusive strategies set up around them. And then we can test what we think needs to be better empirically through assumptions and then enact that strategy. And what you end up getting, if done properly, is greater clarity of choice, which is such a powerful thing for organizations who are looking to be quite be more specific around how they navigate their way through a volatile and ambiguous world as it pertains to does this approach lead to better financial outcomes and other approach i'm not aware of any uh, of any empirical studies that we've done to that and i don't think the intent of the approach is to say that you know if you use these five questions you'll increase your roi by 55% the articulation of the question should be should be reasonably obvious but it's actually the less the questions but the the practitioner's use of them which will create better outcomes for the organization versus not you touched on a good point, having that clarity and to sort of cut through the ambiguity and uncertainty of it all, if you've got this clear understanding of what strategy is in place and how you're going to execute on it and why you're yeah. doing it, it makes decision-making a lot, probably not easier, but definitely more simple, reduces your options, which can... We've all gotten into a point in our lives where we're um, sort of stuck and we're sort of analysis paralysis. We've got too yeah. many options. So I can see this model um, and these five key questions which underpins yep. Deloitte's uh, monitored strategy as being yep. a really, really useful tool to be a, being able to um, sort of cut through and go, okay, what's relevant, what's not relevant, and how can we go forward? Yes. Yeah, so maybe let, let me just give you a very quick example on how it might work in practice. So if you're company A and you're evaluating a growth option, right? Say you're in your and you know, first principles are my growth options are I can either expand into Indonesia or I can try and expand into a, a different customer segment in Australia. Now, what we would argue is that what generally happens is people will sit around, they'll do some, exactly like you described, some analysis, which generally leads to paralysis. 
And then you sort of come back and you discuss and debate and it will be unstructured. And whoever is the bully in the room will vibe, alter the vibe of the room such that it goes to whatever they want. What we suggest is don't do the work in the analysis up front. Try and articulate what would an Indonesia market entry strategy look like? Well, what does winning look like for us there? Which customer segments will we play in Indonesia? Which channel distributors? Why will we win in Indonesia relative to our competitors? All those five questions. I just, so come up with a mini Indonesia strategy and then come up with a mini customer segment strategy and hold those two things mutually exclusively opposite. And then ask yourself, and this is the inversion of the approach, which is the approach we use with those things quite powerful. Is what would need to hold true for this to be the right strategy? So what are the assumptions which need to be true? So I'd need to believe that the market is growing at X percent. I'd need to believe that customers would value this. I'd need to believe that competitors would not respond in this way. And write those things down without any bias and then go and test all those things. Because what you have is you have two things. One is you have an assumption-driven approach, which then allows you to tailor those assumptions in the future, but it's also an empirical fact base such that you can analytically make decisions because you already agreed on what needed to be true. Now you've just gone and done the analysis or the fact-finding on those things. Therefore, you can make a decision which is more grounded in actual facts rather than it being you know, typically how decisions are made around conjecture and people's personalities. It's removing the sort of emotional element from it and taking a more sort of logical standpoint when when approached with multiple options. Yeah, that's right. That's right. How should business owners be approaching strategy and strategic thinking in their business? How can they use this model and apply it to um, to their own business? Yeah, so I think I think those those five questions which I articulated, and again, I mean, playing to win is a great resource. The book, which gives a really good a primer and a guide for business owners to get started on this. So, using those five questions as a way you think about your strategy is a really important thing to start. When you think about your own strategy, think about two things. So think about, uh, I'll use two, two words here, your espoused strategy versus your enacted strategy. So the thing you said you were going to do versus the thing you're actually doing. And this requires a little bit of maturity because you know you have to lower your own ego in that, well, obviously the things I'm doing are the things I said I'd do, but we know in actual fact that's not true. Because what you're trying to do in the strategy setting process is you're trying to find what's the big problem I'm trying to solve here, which exists in my strategy. And typically the problem sits between what I set out to do versus the thing I'm actually doing in market. And then you can sort of frame that option development process, which I just just described earlier, around that big problem you found. The other thing to consider is people have this, uh, they're attached to this notion that strategy should always start with your goal or your winning aspiration. You know, start with your big vision and then work your way out from that. I think that's actually a misnomer because that works when you're starting from a blank piece of paper. So perhaps it's a new startup or a new venture, it makes sense. But every organization already has a strategy. Strategy is just what you do. And so even if it's not written down and not elegantly designed or articulated based on the five questions in the cascade, you already have a strategy. So a good place to start sometimes is in the middle. So it's like, okay, we already have customers. They already buy our product. Why do they like us? Why will they like us tomorrow? What could our competitors do tomorrow? What could change in the future? What would change our market positioning? That gives you enough fodder to have a great strategic conversation. But the architecture of that conversation should still be around that cascade. So it's like, if our unique selling proposition is going to be disrupted next year, 
then we have to change. What will that do to the markets we compete in? What will that mean for our overall aspiration? Which capabilities will we then need to invest in? So the cascade provides quite an elegant architecture for you to navigate through that process. But I would start with what you think you're doing versus what you're actually doing and perhaps get someone independent to test that for you. And then perhaps start in the middle. Why do our customers like us? And how is that going to change in the future to facilitate that conversation? I like that practical advice, being able to um, yeah, start in the middle, start where you're at right now, look at the differences between where you said you would be versus what you're actually doing and finding that gap. You also mentioned understanding sort of the big problem or key problem that you're trying to sort of solve. Are there any ways, because sometimes the problem that you think you're solving or want to solve isn't the sort of core underlying problem. Are there any questions that you would recommend you know, business owners asking themselves to be able to dive a bit deeper to start to understand what that core problem is? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, right? I mean, uh, sort of uh, structured problem solving is kind of the 101 discipline that's taught to management consultants in the first two, three years of, of their career. And um, being able to unpack complex problems is, is really quite important. The simplest way to think about it, say, whilst we want to embark on strategy and strategic conversations, which encompass you know, broader purpose-led narratives, which are beyond just financials. Frankly, if you don't have a profitable growing business, if you're working in the for-profit space, then everything else can perhaps seem a little bit moot. And so a good way to start your problem-solving journey is when you think about the, the concept of driver trees, is, is think about a profit and loss statement as a tree sort of turned on its side. So if, you know, profit is the outcome you're looking for, it's revenue minus cost. My revenue is volume times price, and I can break that down from there. My cost is my my variable cost and my fixed cost, and I can break that down from there. It's as simple as important as going, well, can I break that tree down, say, to its third or fourth node, wherever you can go from your financial system, and do a historical analysis over the course of, say, the last three years or the last five years, whatever your data allows you to do, and really understand what's changed and assess that from two lens is sort of the way I described before. One is what's changed just by virtue of the fact that it's changed and what has not performed to the expectations that you had um, espoused so that you wanted. And implicit within that, you'll be able to find some things like, well, our cost base has not scaled as well as we'd thought with our revenue or our fixed costs have increased at a higher rate than we thought they would or in when I break down my volume, customer segment A has really lagged customer segment B. And that's a really good way of being able to understand where some of the gaps or some of the issues across the organization may exist by taking a very financial analytical lens. Sure. So taking that deep dive approach and sort of breaking things down to its smallest unit in a sense, and then doing yeah. a, doing an analysis, yep. both historical and maybe sort of future focused as well, looking yep. at where the yep. gaps are and then going, okay, well, which areas can I plug? Which areas can I, you know, change the the approach or the levers to to the business? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point being able to break down a problem because you know sometimes problems seem too big; they they seem insurmountable. Being able to sort of break it down into its smallest understandable unit, in a sense, whatever that may be, and then being able to do some analysis on it can give you really key insights to what what needs to be done or what needs to be changed. Well, that's actually the that's the only way to solve problems, actually, Aiden. It's it's actually impossible to solve system led problems at the system level or enterprise led problems. Like if the problem is I need to write a better strategy, 
there is no way you can do that at that level. You have to break that down to its constituent components till there is something. And then, and then you have to have the discipline of breaking it down and solving the things at the right level that need to be solved for. But then the harder discipline to build it back up and then hold your own when you get to the point where going, well, I think this is what we need to do and to not shy away from making the, the difficult decision. The usefulness of using an assumption-driven approach, you know, centered around that question, which is what do I need to believe to be true when I'm problem solving, it actually helps hold you to that discipline where it's like, well, these were the assumptions. I have proven this to be true. Therefore, we should do this thing. The other question to ask yourself is, pending your budget is, if I prove this thing to be true, are you going to give me, and this is something we ask our clients, like, okay, I'll go away. We'll, we'll come up with options. Okay, I'll go away and do this. You're going to invest in $100 million if I prove that's true. It's like, oh, I'm probably not. It's like, well, it's a trivial exercise then. It's not a real option if you're not really going to put money behind the answer. And that's a sense check a business owner can put themselves. So if I said the example I used before, which is expand into Indonesia or customer segment B, if I came back and said, Indonesia is a great opportunity, give me 5 million bucks. They're like, oh, I'm not going to give you 5 million bucks for international growth. I was like, well, it's, it's not a real option then. And that's, that's generally a nice little sense check that you can do before you go beaver away on any analysis. Yes, understanding what parameters, also what, what the boundaries or limitations are before in, embarking on analyzing different options, being able to see, yeah. okay, what, what am I, you know, whether that's financial, whether that's people-based, whether that's geographical, what, whatever they may be, being able to actually put some parameters around it before, because you can save a lot of time doing it that way. Absolutely, yeah. Yep. What are some challenges you see your clients they have to overcome when undergoing this problem solving process? Are there any sort yeah. of blockers that come up for them that you help work through for them to overcome? Are there any sort of uh, yeah challenges that you see that sort of come up on a consistent basis? Yeah. So a couple of things. The first is sort of attachment to a particular bias. Now you have different types of biases, right? You might have a an attachment to the current strategy bias so well our future strategy should just be an enhancement of our current strategy now the analysis may show that actually you need to make some tweaks sort of wholesale change but particularly in the environment we live in today that there's a huge risk to a sort of a currency or a, or a current bias the other thing which is so annoyingly common is an inability to articulate complex ideas in a simple way that is not motherhoody so, you know, when we want to write our strategy on a page, we want to write our, our very short presentation that we finish a, a strategy assignment with to then share with a team. And what can inevitably end up happening is you, you, know, you use motherhoody statements at the expense of what you're actually trying to say because you're trying to be more businesslike and elegant. But in the end, you end up saying nothing. And a good test to ask yourself in the context of choice making and making sure that what you've actually articulated is a clear set of choices is if the opposite of the thing you said is not in itself a choice, then you haven't actually made a choice. And I'll give you an example of that. So if so many strategies anchor around the notion of being a customer-centered organization or a customer-centered culture, what is the opposite of a customer-centered company? Is it a company that's explicitly non-customer-centric? But show me a company that's 
articulated the strategy saying we hate our customers. And therefore, if all you said is it's a customer-centered organization, you haven't actually shed any light. You haven't given any clarity on the choices we've made. Where a customer-centered approach is valid is if we're moving from being a product-centered organization, i.e. we're organized around you know, product lines to being customer-segment-led. That is valid. But simply saying that doesn't matter. So, so being very specific on the words, being very conscious that we are explicitly making choices here and I need you to understand this in a simple way is really quite important. And then the third thing that you know, sort of see a few times is this notion that there's a separation between strategy and execution and, and the fact that people just blame uh, you know, poor, you know, well, the strategy wasn't good or the strategy was good, but the execution was poor. Well, if the strategy was good, then the, the execution should have also been good. The fact that the execution was poor means that you're solving the wrong problem when you were writing the strategy. You should have been thinking about execution as the central problem you were trying to solve in the strategy itself. And so this cognitive separation that people have between strategy and execution, you know, whilst practically speaking is valid, it's actually a dangerous thing to consider because all it allows you to do is point fingers in one direction or the other, which is not helpful in moving an organization forward. That's really powerful to understand the difference between the two and how they cross over and sort of key challenges and biases that may come up that we can sort of sense check ourselves. I like your point about the looking at the alternative and, and the reverse of your statement to see if that has any validity or not. And if it doesn't, then then there's a chance that you need to be more clear and specific around defining what you're actually going after. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I use that test all the time myself when I'm writing going, well, someone, is there an alternative to this? And if not, am I actually writing something valuable down? Or am I just writing things for the sake of filling pages? And it's a really important consideration just as a mode of communicating and thinking about strategy. Karan, I wanted to get your perspective on what business owners can do to start to develop their own strategic thinking in their own business. There are ways that they can sort of sense check themselves or start to have more of a strategic view of their of their business. Yeah, I think, I mean, look, I, I'm always an advocate of, of reading. You know, we are the beneficiaries of uh, many, many decades of, of work, particularly in this field, which has gone into strategy sort of I mean, part of its origins are born out through the time of Aristotle to two odd thousand years ago or 3,000 years ago. But more recently, scientific management, which is the approach we use, has sort of come about from the Industrial Revolution. So I know a lot of business owners don't have time to read books on books and papers on papers. But I know, I'm pretty sure HBR, the Harvard Business Review, has its 10 must-reads on strategy, which is, a, I think, a short book which you can pick up, which gives you some guidance. The other one is playing to win. I think I think, you know, like anything, and your listeners will know this in their endeavors, whichever they go in, having a little bit of a, a principles-led approach to the way you go about just doing business is really quite important. Like if you're making, a, you know, pharmaceuticals or biotech and you're making a new drug and understanding the way new drugs are made before you actually go about making a new drug, in the same way, you should treat strategy as a discipline. And a vocation. It is a vocation for many people, myself included. Therefore, getting yourself savvy with some of the basic principles is helpful in you imparting on this. And I think um, 
using playing to win as a basis, using HBRs, um, reviews, if you want to read uh, Michael Porter's work on competitive strategy, it's quite good as well. And if you really want to get into the nerdy part, there's a book called The Lords of Strategy, which I nerded out over, but I'm not sure I would necessarily recommend it to everyone. It's if you wanted history of how the, the actual art of strategy and the profession has evolved, it can get you into that. But the key takeaway is Go and read a couple of good books to get yourself a little bit savvy in the intellectual content. Wonderful. We'll include uh, links to those uh, those resources where uh, those listening can click on them and um, sort of explore though, that content at their own sort of leisure. Karana, a question I'd like to ask all guests and I'd like to get your view of it is, what's your definition of the grind? I think it's the pursuit of excellence. So I think there's a quote which um, I'm reminded of, which is, often attributed to uh, Aristotle, who I mentioned before, but I think it's actually from Will Durant, who said, we are what we repeatedly do. So excellence then is not an act, but a habit. And I think all business owners every day would like to be more excellent across every aspect of their business, be it them as people leaders, be it them as strategic leaders, be it them as communicators, be it them as you know financial managers, but also purpose-driven leaders as well. And I think the grind is only helpful if it's helping grow and build and increase your business. And a lot of that for those people who are in the grind on a daily basis, it's actually a, another reflection on your own pursuit of excellence. And so I, we talked about the Young Seek Professionals Network before. And I remember I, I stepped down as chair of that a couple of years ago. And one of my last addresses to the organization was anchored around this quote and how important it is that we keep pursuing excellence in every aspect of the organization that is possible for us to do with the time that we have available to us. Yeah, that's a wonderful sort of view of the word, that that pursuit of excellence is, is so true. And having those underlying habits that we do on a daily basis sort of build up into, into our lives, really. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Karan, where can people find more about you and Monitor Deloitte? Uh, so Monitor Deloitte, you know, you can find out on the via Deloitte's public website. Deloitte is a big organization. We're obviously a broad church. We do many, many things. So you can find out more about us, Deloitte.com and uh, trace your way through to the, the sections in, within consulting and then for Monitor. About me, if your listeners want to look me up on LinkedIn and add, give me an ad, feel free to please do that. I've um. I finished my my terms as chairman of two pretty intense not-for-profits. And so I'm enjoying the time that I have away from having a outside of work life, which was at times uh, more intense than my day job. <laughs> so <laughs> my small public profile is, is diminished a little bit. So LinkedIn is probably the best way to find me if any further conversation is necessary. But um, no, Aiden, it's been really good to chat, mate. Yeah, look, Sam here. Thank you for sharing everything around strategy. You shared some really key takeaways that uh, for those listening, can I encourage you to listen back to what Karan shared, write those questions down and apply it both in your business, but probably in your life as well. There'd be some key takeaways that you could apply. The same questions could be applied to your own life. So I'd encourage those listening to, to take the time and um, see where the answers sort of lead. But thank you, Karan, for sharing. I really, really do appreciate it. My pleasure, mate. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stories Behind the Grind. Please share the podcast. And if you're not already subscribed, be sure to do that right now. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you could do me a quick favor and rate and review the podcast. This lets the platform know that I'm doing something right and people like the content. It'd be a huge help and I'd be really, really grateful if you could. Until next time.